Hello and welcome to episode 52 of A Positive Podcast. Today's podcast episode is powered by okclarity.com. More about that later in the show. Today's podcast episode, I dedicate to all of my loved ones, my friends and families and my listeners who heroically battle their anxiety each and every day and who are learning how to thrive with their anxiety. You are my inspiration. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or celebrate an upcoming special occasion or just because you appreciate what we're doing here on A Positive Podcast, please reach out on my website, apositivecoach.com or email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology-based coaching and to see if it's a fit for you, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com to set up your free consultation today. In addition, if you could take a moment and leave a rating and review on our podcast, we would be very appreciative as it helps others find the podcast easier. It only takes a minute and yet it's very effective. Today, it seems that the most common challenge that adults, teens, and children alike are struggling with is anxiety of some form. We have people who struggle with situational anxiety, others who seem to have continuous ongoing anxiety, debilitating anxiety, those that have episodes of anxiety, and it's quite the challenge. And there's those that just deal with it occasionally. It seems to me that there isn't anyone today who doesn't have a loved one who struggles with anxiety or they themselves struggle with anxiety. And that is why I chose to reach out to one of the top experts on this topic to get his insight. So in today's episode, my husband, Rabbi Nechame, and I sit down with renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Roz Marin. And in this conversation, we explore the crucial topic of anxiety from various angles and providing valuable insights. And he shares effective management strategies and his shares with us how to have compassion for our loved ones that are struggling with these with anxiety. And with the upcoming release of Dr. Ross Marin's highly anticipated book, Thriving with Anxiety, he shares a unique approach to anxiety. He tells us all about the idea that we can actually learn how to harness our anxiety and we can learn to thrive with our anxiety. So whether you're personally affected by anxiety or you wish to gain a deeper understanding of this prevalent mental health issue, or you just wanna be a support for your loved one and wanna educate yourself, this episode is a must listen. Join us for an insightful conversation as we navigate the complexities of anxiety and we discover affecting coping strategies and we uncover the power of support in promoting mental well-being. I know that you will learn a few things through this conversation, so thank you for listening. Sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Welcome, Dr. Ross Marin, to a positive podcast. We are very grateful that you were willing to join us today for this important conversation and a very important topic of anxiety. And if you don't mind to begin by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do so that we can kind of give our listeners some context. Sure. Very happy. And thanks for having me on your show. Uh, David Ross Marin, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm the founder of Center for Anxiety, which has offices in multiple states. And uh, I'm an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and a program director at McLean Hospital. I'm also author of an upcoming book called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, which is being released with HarperCollins this coming October. Exciting. My first question is, over this past weekend, I had the privilege to read an excerpt from your upcoming new book, Thriving with Anxiety, which I have to say I found really interesting and quite fascinating. 
And you, sh you shared that through your years of clinical work, you found that people fall into one of four categories or four broadly defined groups of emotional and behavioral health, meaning people at any given time or any moment can be categorized into one of these four groups. Can you share a little bit about these four groups and explain this a little bit in more detail? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, just uh, as a starting point, you know, the concept, the main concept behind thriving with anxiety is that um, anxiety is not a disease. It is something that can become disordered, and it is increasingly becoming disordered in our population, but it doesn't have to be that way either. It is a human trait. It is a natural aspect of being alive. And when we have the right tools and skills, we can turn it into a strength one that enhances our lives and enhances our connection. However, getting back to your question of these four categories, um, some individuals uh, do not do this. Uh, many individuals do not do this. And when we don't to a certain respect, to a certain degree rather, um, we can become disordered. And um, even within that, there's really two categories, if you will, of people who are disordered, people who are severely uh, distressed, um, who cannot function day to day, they might be suicidal, they cannot um, be employed because of their distress, and then individuals who can be, um, but need professional help in order to be able to, and there's an increasing number of, of such individuals as well, and uh, nothing wrong with it, if people are struggling, then get the help you need, um, but um, that's sort of two of the categories. However, a lot of individuals are what I would call languishing. Um, I got that from Adam Grant, who wrote a fantastic article in the New York Times in 2020 about this subject. And uh, languishing individuals are uh, those who are not flourishing in their lives, but um, they are also not uh, clinically distressed. And uh, that's also an increasing number of people. And finally, the few and far between are those who are flourishing. Um, and those might have distress from time to time, but it's not um, pervasive. It's something that's fleeting, comes, and they have usually uh, a robust toolkit um, in terms of thriving, being able to thrive with anxiety. And sometimes though, they're just super lucky. Yeah, uh, they're just blessed, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, so those are the four groups. And I'm sure people listening can find that they, at certain points in their life, might have, may move from one group to the other group. Like Very they're not so. necessarily gonna stay in one group your whole life. And um, it's interesting because what would you say most people, which group would most people fall into? Which one of those four? In the Western hemisphere? Yeah. <laughs> Probably uh, the middle, um, like anything. And when you have a bell curve, it's gonna be the middle. So people who are either languishing or people who are distressed, but not severely so. Um, I would say that's probably the majority of our population today, um, with very few people either flourishing or being um, severely distressed. Um, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're basically saying, as a central premise to your book and, and to all the work that you do, is that we as a society are using the word anxiety way too easily. We just throw out the word anxiety and it's far more nuanced. There, a certain amount of anxiety is normal, healthy, and appropriate for everybody. Correct. That's 100% correct. We use it as a, uh, uh, a diagnostic term, even a pejorative or judgmental term, um, and it's none, it's none of that. People who are flourishing still have plenty of anxiety. They just usually know more what to do with it day to day. Um, but even they can benefit from skills and strategies to be able to manage it better and to teach others. So the book is for everyone. I see that. So tell me something. What would you put general anxiety disorder? 
that clinical description of GAD? And what four of those groups would that fall into? Yeah, it's either group three or four. So somebody with GAD, with generalized anxiety disorder, um, for those who are not familiar, usually consumed by worry, very apprehensive about the future, cannot stop worrying most of the day, nearly every day. And it's usually accompanied by physical sensations, stress, lots of tension in the neck, stomach upset, um, could be some difficulty breathing, some limited symptom panic attacks, kind of stuff going on. Um, and uh, it has some impact on their functioning. So already we're in you know, distressed territory, that group three. Some people though have GAD so severe that it's really group four um, and they cannot function day to day. I've seen a, a lot of such patients um, over um, the last 20 years. Um, and then some people are, you know, the worried well, as they're said, and those people would be more languishing or even flourishing potentially, depending on what they do. Let me ask you a, a question, and this may be jumping towards the end, um, and if, if we want to jump back to it later, we can, but would you find that your belief system about anxiety, that it's something that's a tool, you can thrive with it, is uh, something that is pushing back against the whole psychotherapeutic industry and you're a bit of an outlier? Um, no, I don't think my approach is that uh, avant-garde or uh, <laughs> counterintuitive. Um, I think the psychotherapy industry, in fact, is very much in line with um, learning to, teaching individuals rather, to um, uh, deal with anxiety through psychosocial, psychosocial means, through their skills and tools that they can do day to day. And that's very consistent. Um, the only one potential difference is that it's very much a strength-based approach. And I don't think all of my colleagues would see anxiety as a strength. Um, and uh, truth be told, in some cases, people don't use it as a strength, so they're not entirely wrong. Um, but uh, many of my colleagues at Center for Anxiety and McLean Hospital, uh, in fact, I dedicated the book to them because uh, many of them help people to thrive with their anxiety every day. Right. So I have another question. It's clear that anxiety is like, it serves as a protective purpose in our lives, like you mentioned, and it helps us recognize and respond to potential dangers or threats. But instead of avoiding situations that cause anxiety is now believed to, it's better for us, it's more beneficial to face them head on and explore them in greater depth. So even if it's for a short period of time. So my question is, is if somebody's experiencing anxiety around, be it social anxiety, whatever it may be, and they tend to avoid those situations, we're now learning that it's better for them to actually kind of do exposure therapy and to like actually dig into their anxiety, stop running from their anxiety, but actually face it head on. My question to that is, how much are they supposed to be doing? Um, what are your feelings about this approach? Because to me, the people that I know that struggle with anxiety, they really try to avoid it as much as possible and create like situations where they just have to go around it. But what it seems like is that it just pops up somewhere else. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's in chapter three of the book. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, avoidance is the um, default for many people when it comes to anxiety. They don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. It's uncomfortable. It makes sense when you're feeling uncomfortable, when you're feeling jazzed up, you know, your heart's racing, you're having trouble breathing, you're feeling, you mentioned social anxiety, so shyness around other people, you're feeling embarrassed, you're going to want to run away, you're not going to want to stay there, you're going to, going to want to grab a beer and, uh, you know, have at least some uh, 
medication also, you know, so, so to speak, so, you know, self-medicating uh, ways of dealing with that and getting rid of the feelings. And, um, but you're right. Um, facing our anxiety is one of the tools, one of the key, key tools um, for dealing with it and doing so with, you mentioned exposure therapy for those uh, listeners who don't know, exposure therapy involves systematically confronting your fears um, step-by-step. So if you're afraid of social situations, you start by you know, speaking to strangers, let's say in the street and work your way up to giving a talk in front of 50 people who you don't know um, and all the points in between, however long it takes. And uh, it's, a, it's a very um, scary uh, treatment, but at the same time, many people come out so emboldened and changed through that process, um, much more resilient to face not only their anxiety, but actually other life stressors. And uh, that's one of the ways that you can thrive with your anxiety if people are being beaten by it, so to speak. Um, taking the time to face those stressors can bring out an aspect of yourself that you never even knew was there and uh, give a real renewed strength to deal with um, any number of stressors in life. Right, so the, the way we like to refer to it um, in, in our house is the only way past anxiety is through the anxiety. But I, I guess you would take a more nuanced approach and say, the goal is not to get past anxiety. The goal is to get past the point where anxiety is ruining your life. Um, but, but once it's not ruining your life, somehow it can be your friend. Sure. Um, there are other paths as well. Uh, it's, it's a key path and it's definitely a go-to strategy. But um, I think there are a lot of ways to thrive with anxiety and to, to have it enhance your life. Exposure therapy is a tough one, but a very important one. A critical one. So you can really, so look, that's an important question. So are you saying that you can get through deal like languishing or, you know, any of the other groups that you mentioned, the difficulties of anxiety without doing exposure therapy? There are other ways? There are other ways that people do. And I've seen this. Interpersonal psychotherapy, for example, helps individuals to have more connection in their lives. And through enhancing their interpersonal relationships, most of all romantic relationships, that can give a person a lot less to worry about. I've never been able to treat a patient who's in love. They don't have any symptoms. They don't have any symptoms. They're on a cloud. What do you explain can, that? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting <laughs> phenomena that was explained to me by one of my graduate school mentors, Dr. Rob Carrolls. And I chuckled in the class when he said it, but I've seen it so many times in my career that when people get into positive patterns with other individuals, um, when they, in fact, can use their anxiety to connect to others and to enhance their relationships, the anxiety can become a great blessing. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that exposure therapy or facing your fears isn't a key strategy. It is. And if we don't do that, we're often missing out. But there are other things as well that can um, make a difference in the long run. So now, I'm, now I'm totally curious more about this whole thing. Love, are you saying, or is your is your mentor saying that? If you're in love and you have a relationship that's deep and connecting, is it healing your anxiety or are you using your anxiety? I'm trying to understand that. I'm having a hard time. Help me here. Great question. On the one hand, it is a distraction because people have, you know, all those love hormones and you're, you know, feeling connected and you're just on cloud nine. On the other hand, though, people can use that experience of love to become more vulnerable in their relationships and to talk with the person who they're in love with about what's really on their mind, to pour their heart out, to become really truly vulnerable with that person. And assuming that they're there for you, that they come through for you, 
which is not always the case, but assuming that they do, that can truly enhance the relationship. Wouldn't that make them their therapist? Well, yeah, let, no. let, me, let me add to that a little bit. It's, it's not only no, that, I'm not, so curious. It's not only not making them their therapist, it, it, um, and I know this is a anxiety conversation, not a, not a marriage um, um, relationship, um, yeah. relationship um, conversation, but I could almost see that backfiring and becoming you know, a real strain on a relationship when this one spouse has to be the one who's always lifting the other one up. No, that, that obviously is not what I'm speaking about here. Um, it, 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 when people navigate their anxiety in the context of a relationship in an appropriate way, that's the set of school, that's a set of skills and tools that I talk about in the book. And uh, obviously I'm not talking about turning your, you know, spouse into your therapist or bringing right. them out, um, obviously. And, uh, that's, uh, but, but when people, you know, I, I'll put it, I'll put it the other way. It's very hard to feel truly connected to somebody who doesn't need you at all. That's a really good line. That is very true. But not when you're burning them out, but when you can say to them like, you know what, I'm really having a hard day and I really need you right now. You know, and I don't show that side of myself to everyone. I'm just showing it to you. That can be, that can enhance the relationship and bring closeness, in which case the distress actually is a catalyst for interpersonal. Okay. Health. So I think within healthy boundaries. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't wanna turn this into a Talmudic, you know, splitting yeah. up hairs, but it seems that in some stages of the four stages of anxiety that you described, um, a, a healthy relationship where your spouse can be a, a, a healthy support, that could be good. But if a person is in extreme distress and they try to replace tr true treatment with their spouse, that's not going to work. Right. That's going to backfire. Yes. Of course. Yeah, of course, that's the case. So back to the original question, because we got sidetracked there. So you are saying, though, that there are other ways besides exposure therapy to learn to harness your anxiety and thrive with your anxiety? I think there are a number of skills that people can use. Um, there are a number of tools in the toolkit and it's a matter of figuring out, they're all good. Let me get, let me put it this way. And uh, they can all benefit um, us and myself included, frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at different points in time, we have to have a robust toolkit. So, you know, we can, so we have choices. I'm, I'm going to jump out of order over here for a second. So I, I know we don't want to give away the book so that people actually buy the book. Um, and I know that you say that there's nine tools. Can, can you give us just like a, a, a sampling, a sampling of something um, that, that would be a tool, a, a very concrete tool um, that a person could use where their anxiety is, is helping them thrive? Um, not, not something that just ameliorates some of the, the, the pain. But, or, or the difficulty, but something that, that is actually, you've made it your friend, you've made it work for you. Sure. So the way the book is organized is it can um, uh, enhance your relationship with yourself, with others, and potentially your spiritual relationships for those who have. In terms of relationship with yourself, exposure therapy is one of those strategies where people really overcome a fear that they have and they say, I'm gonna push through this, you know, like you do in your home, I guess with your kids. And you're like, we're gonna, we're gonna. The only way through, uh, uh, or the only way to deal with anxiety is through it. And I, I like what you were saying before. And that really helps to build an inner resilience and strength that people don't realize they have. Um, we talked about an interpersonal strategy of relying on people and showing your vulnerability, turning your anxiety into love, without burning the other person out, of course. Um, I can give you a spiritual strategy, which might be a particular interest to your listeners. Um, 
the core of anxiety, everyone will tell you, I mean, even the most uh, secular clinicians will tell you uh, an intolerance of uncertainty. When you can't tolerate not knowing what's gonna happen next, you're gonna feel anxious, especially worried. If you're walking around and you don't know what's gonna happen, we don't know what's gonna happen next, but let's just say you're aware of that, particularly in the moment, and you can't tolerate that, it's gonna set off the anxiety spiral. And this is something that spirituality has been dealing with for centuries, the fact that human beings are limited. We don't know what's gonna happen. We can't control what's gonna happen beyond our very limited human faculties. And what do we do with that existential reality? Are we plagued by anxiety? Do we delude ourselves thinking that we have more control and more knowledge than we do? Or do we accept it and turn over that power um, and use our anxiety as a way to actually lift ourselves up and to become to embrace uncertainty and to embrace our lack of controllability over the world? Um, when we do that, I think people can can grow spiritually should they choose to do so. Yes, and you you mentioned this in your in the excerpt that I read as well that even though we're living in a time where we have more certainty than we've ever had before, meaning our grandparents and generations before had so much uncertainty they didn't know where the next meal was going to come from or if they were going to be alive at the end of the day, and yet we are experiencing way more debilitating anxiety than they ever had. Correct, and even if you look at third world countries, if you look at low income countries versus middle income countries, and middle income countries versus high income countries. You can divide the level of anxiety in half as you come down. Middle-income countries, half as much anxiety as us. Low-income countries, half as much anxiety as middle-income countries. And so when we, fact. and if you compared, um, and this is something I'm just curious about, if you compared children that are growing up in homes of certain brackets and not, maybe not even how much money their parents are earning, but how much they're given and how many things that they are allowed to have and with freedom without earning things compared to low income. What are the levels of anxiety that children are experiencing so, there? I mean, maybe we don't have data on that, but I'm just Yeah, curious. no, we, we do. And that's more complicated because within Western culture, um, uh, to not have is not a blessing. No, of course not because um, everybody else is in control. Everybody else has everything great and I don't. And there's okay, so a comparison, right. But if we're in a culture, if a person lives in a culture where of course I don't know what's gonna happen next, you know, Everybody. the government might take over the whole city tomorrow and they're living with that level of uncontrollability and uncertainty. The irony is getting used to it, people actually become less anxious because it's not understood. It's not part of your life to know everything or to be in control all the time. Right, that's, that's a the right. problem. Right, and, and it's interesting to, to that point, you know, and I'm sure there's no clear data on, on my next sentence either, but you know, the, the famous book, you know, Shara, Shara Batachon you know, from Rav Ibn Bakuda, you know, it's been around for, that, for a thousand years, but it seems like it's made a real comeback, you know, as more and more people are developing anxiety. I think that's really the fundamental core of every of the whole Shara Batachon is, you don't have control. And the moment you can make peace with that, you will be at peace with yourself. Correct. I'll your just point. add on to that. A lot of people think that belief or faith in God or something greater, which is what the Sharabi Tachan, the gate of trust in God is about, is a way of trying to manipulate the world, but it's not. It's actually a way of releasing control and saying, I don't have control. I'm not going to know. It's, I don't know whether I'm going to get home today. Like, let's, let's be real. 
Like, what time is it? It's 1.30 in the afternoon. Okay, so I'm going to be here for a little while. I'm going to drive home. I hope I make it. Like, I'd love to see my family and to say hello to them, but I really don't know. Um, can I embrace that? Can I be aware of that? And really, you know, if I am, if I, if I can, my anxiety can actually help me to become much more accepting um, of aspects of life. So people that fall into that category, because I, I, you know, like for me personally, I don't struggle with anxiety and I, and I, I almost feel like I'm okay. out of, I do. I, <laughs> I know it's just almost like, it's strange. I feel out of loop because I, a lot of people around me do, and I want to understand it more. That's why I'm constantly seeking to read about it, educate myself on the topic. And it's, I can't say that I'm more spiritual than other people. It's can't, I can't say that it's that I'm more uh, belief. I believe more in God than other people that do. I think it's like what you just said. And that's why I'm, it's really resonating with me is that I'm just more comfortable with uncertainty. I'm okay in my mind if certain I, I'm more at peace with certain outcomes. Like, yeah, that might happen. Like, yeah. I, I think the doctor is saying is that A um, leads to B, spirituality and, 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 and letting go will lead to but, less anxiety, but less anxiety doesn't mean that you have more spirituality. Right, right. And it doesn't mean either that you're more, let's say, religious or more devout or or somebody who's more connected spiritually. It's just that you are more okay with you're more resilient towards dealing with uncertainty. You, you just have really great genes. No, I don't know if that's the case. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure about that. But but back to the rich, I just have one more question before we move forward about the um, exposure therapy. In your opinion, in your clinical opinion, do you think this idea, if parents who have little children, six, I don't even, you know, what age, because they're really little people. I believe these children are brilliant. They, if you talk to them and really eye level, you can really explain an idea to them. They get it. Do you think it's okay to share that idea of, going through the anxiety with them? Is that, is that an okay? Absolutely. Idea yeah, absolutely. I think so. The one place I might get, uh, be a little cautious is parents should not force children to face their fears. Um, the one key piece of exposure therapy is that it must be done voluntarily. Somebody has to voluntarily themselves choose to face their fears. And, uh, when, when parents force their kids to do so, um, we can encourage them. We can motivate them. We can maybe even bribe them. We can, you know, make a chart and have them, you know, moving towards something. All of that's fair game, but they need to make the choice. Um, if someone's afraid of snakes, uh, as a clinician, I would never throw a snake on their lab. Of course, right. right. But I might hold it and have them come over and eventually, you know, choose to, you know, touch it or to watch it go free on so floor. So what I've noticed, and I'm curious if you if this has any infer, anything to do with like there's any data on this. What I've noticed is that the pain of the loss of what they are avoiding, and the pain is higher. Meaning when the gain of what they, what's the ratio that I'm trying to explain? If you're missing out going to sleepaway camp because you're so scared of sleeping away from home, but the other side of it is social death yeah, at home. Like if you don't go, the pain level. So that kind of pushes them to say, I'm going to give it a try. Like I, I need to do this. The, the outcome is just, if I don't, it's like so bad. I've noticed that that kind of, um, I don't want to say pressure, pressure. Yeah, it is pressure kind of gets them a little bit that they, they voluntarily choose it. Is there, is let, there, let, any... let me frame that differently. It's almost like if the natural consequences are so great, right. that will often be the, the final impetus to force the child on their own to confront the fear because the 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 price of not confronting it is so great. Is that is it? You is know, there sometimes any... yes and sometimes no. Right, I was. Gonna, it's got to be very individualized. Right. People 
um, you know, it's kind of the core of the book. People who want to use tools and skills to be able to overcome their anxiety have the capacity to do so. There's a, there's a section in there on, um, on free will and on um, the human capacity for choice and the human capacity for greatness. And uh, it's not always so simple. Sometimes people make a choice to overcome their anxiety, even if it's not necessarily the easiest thing for them to do, but it's something that they want to do. So um, these can be factors that shape our will, but at the end of the day, there's nothing that stands in front of the human will. Whatever you want to do, that's what you're going to do. Exactly. Right. And then ultimately, there are, you know, the growth mindset people, the, you know, anxiety doesn't mean you're not awesome. You can be, Absolutely. You, many people are very, very awesome with anxiety and um, the, the growth mindset people will, you know, you know, you know uh, plug away at it and chip at it until they, you know, get some kind of mastery. And those who want to languish will languish. And, and, they want to languish. Or, 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 or those who don't have the inner um, capacity to confront. Right. I, I guess I, I see certain people who, with their anxiety, they will just step up again and again and again and get knocked down and get up again. And others, it almost looks like they don't even want to try. Yeah, I wouldn't be overly moralistic about it. I think a lot of people don't know what to do. A lot of people just, they experience this anxiety. They're, they Right away, they say something's wrong with me. They start going down the anxiety spiral. They judge themselves. They consider themselves weak. Yeah, that might be reinforced by practitioners inadvertently, who will say something's wrong with you. Um, they uh, immediately will avoid, as we spoke about beforehand, um, not speak to other people because they don't want to be a burden. Maybe the other people in their lives aren't capable or willing to support them, which is hard. They might not have the resources to be able to access. Um, books or therapy or, or anything. So I wouldn't be too moralistic about it. I think there's a lot of contextual factors that can really shape um, people's choices. Um, but um, I do think there are um, skills and strategies that anybody at any place that they're at can use potentially um, if they're steadfast and choose to do so. Um, it might not be an easy path, but there is certainly what that you can do. Okay, so let me step into a, a, a little bit of a continuation of this conversation. And I think this question probably could be asked of any therapist who, de who, who deals with uh, patients or clients with uh, anxiety, but I think it's specific a little bit more to you since you know, you're going with the premise that anxiety um, does not need to be gotten rid of. It just, it's your friend, you need to learn how to harness it and using all the tools you can do so. You know, maybe at the upper levels or the more baseline levels of, of what you described, the four levels of anxiety, you could use rational thoughts, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, you could use um, ideas and tools to help yourself. But when you're really, really anxious, and certainly mm -hmm. when you're in, in the state of extreme distress, you're basically offline, your brain is not working. You're like, there, there is no logic that can, the person, and it's not, it's not the fault of the person, they are in distress, the brain is just not working at that moment. Um, What's your question? I, I, <laughs> I guess the question is, is how does one apply these tools when you're in severe distress or well, I, I forgot the names for the category three? Yeah, no, if you're in severe distress, I get it. Um, it's, it, you might need, you're probably going to need more help than just a, a self-help book uh, to be able to pull out of um, a nosedive. And um, that can include uh, pharmacotherapy, it can include, it can include psychotherapy, it can include uh, family support, um, it can include making a job change, it can include uh, really looking. Pardon? 
It can include all of the above. All of the above. And uh, these are, you know, neurotherapeutics. You know, there's TMS these days, there's ketamine. I mean, there's so many different options that people have. Um, however, um, I think that uh, it's critical to, um, for individuals who are struggling at any level to start to make choices and develop skills to be able to pick themselves up uh, alongside anything else that they're using in their toolkit. Okay, so let, let me let me just um, dive a tiny bit deeper into that. Would you say that it's safe to say, uh, based on this conversation, that if a person feels that they're going from a normal level of anxiety to a little bit higher level, that the quicker you put the tools in place, you can actually protect yourself from falling into extreme distress. Um, in other words, you know, can can the book stop the spiral, if you will? I wouldn't get anxious about putting the anxiety tools into place. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, at the same time, um, I think there are, there are, when we get anxiety, it's our body's way of telling us something needs to change. And that might be taking down our stress level. You know, this is a very basic strategy in chapter one, I think, where people um, have a little more time for relaxation and, and rest. Um, you know, I was dealing with a case recently of somebody who ended up with some, even some medical con concerns um, because uh, they were working uh, just way too hard, way too long in terms of hours. And they have to shut off their phone at uh, you know, a reasonable hour. That's just the, the bottom line, at least for the next month or two um, in order to reset. And uh, their, their anxiety is raging and this, this for them, plus exercise, plus speaking to other people, plus facing a little bit of their distress, um, and perhaps some spiritual strategies as well would all be part of their toolkit. You think that, do you believe in your experience, have you seen that people can just randomly have a bout of anxiety or is it something that they've had since their children or they just didn't know about, but is it somebody like at 20 or 25 or 40 all of a sudden has a panic attack for the first time? Is that You, you mean not induced by a work, uh, so an, an external course. crisis or, so, or, or a drug, right. drug interaction or something? Right, I'm saying all of a sudden, or you know, all of a sudden that person is experiencing some form of anxiety. It's a new thing that they haven't had before. Absolutely, absolutely. People can have, a, a panic attack is actually a great example. Pan, the definition of a panic attack is that it comes out of the blue and you're not expecting it. Right. So, um, that is, uh, th those can happen at any point um, over the age range. Um, some people might have better uh, resources to be able to deal with it when it occurs, uh, and others might not, and that might develop into subsequent attacks and potentially, you know, to, to become worse, to, to worsen. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Remember, anxiety is a natural part of being human. So if you haven't had anxiety before, and all of a sudden you're having it now, I think the the more novel, uh, uh, the, the greater novelty is the fact that you haven't been anxious until now, not the fact that you're all of a sudden having it. Right, that is true. So it's common for individuals that are struggling with anxiety to experience sleep issues. This is something that a lot of people start to notice first. They may not even notice their anxiety, but they're having a hard time falling asleep or struggling to stay asleep. Um, and it prevents them to get sufficient from getting sufficient rest, which makes it even worse and makes their emotional and physical, you know, they're even more exhausted. If someone finds himself in, caught in the cycle of anxiety, disturbing their sleep, um, leading to more anxiety and more sleep issues, and they get anxious about sleeping, and then am I going to sleep? Am I not going to sleep? And it becomes like this loop almost. 
what, what recommendations do you have to break this cycle and to help them improve their sleep quality? So how can they effectively manage, can they effectively manage both their sleep um, problems or sleep issues and their anxiety? Yeah, it's a great question. A very timely one. Sleep issues are, like you said, com highly comorbid with anxiety, and they often relate to each other because the less sleep you get, you know, we know how we feel after a, after a sleepless night, you're going to feel more anxious or sad, or you're going to have more of a mood uh, disturbance the next day, almost always. A key piece, turning off your phone before no you go way. to I did not know that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and making sure if you, you know, uh, making sure your device is in another room. Often what happens, the midnight wakings, when people wake up in the middle of the night because they're anxious or for any reason, once you check that phone, much harder to go to bed. And keeping a your phone in a different room is really critical. Um, here's another one, having a bedtime. Most people, you know, I know, don't have a set bedtime. Um, they might have a sort of an aspirational range, which is, I suppose, fine, but some people don't think about it much at all. When they're tired, they go to bed. When they're not, they wake up or they have to wake up at a certain time in the morning in order to get to work. But whatever time you have to wake up in the morning, count back seven or eight hours. That is your bedtime. And a half hour before that, no phone and getting ready for bed. And these kinds of strategies are seldom applied today because uh, we have all this electricity, we can keep ourselves going 24 seven pro being productive. And uh, it's, done, uh, it's done a number on our anxiety. You know, it, it reminds me of the, the, the famous statement from Roosevelt, you know, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. Um, you know, it, 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 you stop fearing what you're fearing and you're just fearing the fear. Um, you know, and, and sleep often can, you know, become that same vicious cycle of uh, I, I can't sleep. Um, and now I'm anxious about the fact that I'm not going to be able to sleep. And, and it literally becomes that repetitive cycle. So you're basically saying that, you know, practice some good sleep hygiene to avoid the problem. That's to, um, to, to that's preventative. Um, and also if you're in the loop, that can be a good, a healthy way to, I guess, slow it down, but it's not immediate. Um, outside, not of medications, immediate. Is, is, outside of medications, is there any other, you know, quicker fix or someone's travel, for example, you're, you're, when, when you travel, when I travel, I'm a mess because I can never get it right. Right. Well, time change doesn't help either and all that. Yes. Traveling is much more complicated, but, you know, getting back to people who are, you know, in one time zone and their circadian rhythms are mostly set. Um, one thing that the folks who practice cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia will um, very much stress is not to sleep during the day. And if you wake up the same time every day and you have a bedtime and you're following proper sleep hygiene, um, Two or three days like that, you're going to fall asleep on time. It's very hard. So, to, so would you say, so I've heard people say, you know, in their 60s and 70s, I just don't sleep. I don't sleep well. So I never have. And they're like, I do everything. Older, I go to sleep early and, yeah. I'm at, and I I'm have a bedtime. And they're following all the things that you say and they still struggle with sleep. And I'm not saying that the people that are older struggle. I'm saying they've always been that way since they're in their 30s, 40s. And I'm just curious, is that... Is there any proof that there are just some people who just don't require as much sleep that just, um, they're just, that's, they struggle with sleep. That's just who they yeah, are. The average amount of sleep that, you know, an adult will need, and I mean, uh, not an older adult, older adults do need less sleep. Typically it can trail off to six hours or even, even, even fewer than that in certain cases. 
but the, the, the mean average is going to be between seven and nine. Right. Okay? Some people need nine. Some people need seven. I know people who need six hours and they're actually fine. After five and a half, six hours of sleep, they're refreshed. I know people who need nine hours or more. And that's fine. Whatever your sleep needs are, make sure that you subtract it. I just gave a rule of thumb seven beforehand because, right. you know, for, for a general public, for a general audience. Also, most people are so sleep deprived that seven is such a high number. But in reality, you're right. If people need more, great. Get it. Get whatever you need. That's definitely the case. So I, I know that um, my husband just before asked a little bit about the book, but I, you're about to release this new book. Um, it focuses on harnessing your anxiety. I love the title, Thriving with Anxiety. I think it's such a great um, title that the world needs to hear that that's even a possibility. Um, it just, it really is. But if you don't mind to share with us some, the inspiration behind the book and give us a glimpse into what readers can expect to find within its pages. I know we touched on that a little bit, but if you don't mind to go to share that with us. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, experiences over the last 20 to 30 years of, uh, have shaped my thinking about anxiety and uh, um, and helped me to to realize that it's something to thrive with. Um, I think uh, you know if I were to summarize the main message again, anxiety is not a disease. It's something that we fear. You mentioned Roosevelt. And we we fear fear itself. That is exactly what we do today. We've turned this into a malady that's uniformly something to be loathed. And in doing so, the minute people feel anxious, they actually become very anxious about the fact that they're anxious, which makes things precipitously worse. Um, as opposed to recognizing that we don't have to be and we're not meant to be comfortable and have perfect equanimity all the time. You know, uh, I, I look back at periods of my life where I had anxiety. And um, uh, when I initially did, I thought something's wrong with me. And, um, and uh, there was a lot of judgment there. There was a lot of judgment. There was a lot of catastrophization. There was a lot of concern of what's going to be for the future. If I'm anxious now, then how am I going to be able to handle other things? And, and once I realized that those are, those are not true, neither of them are true. A, anxiety is part of life. B, it's not necessarily anything to get too worried about. And C, it's certainly nothing to judge myself over. That in of itself was a great, a great self. And uh, that's the starting point. That's really the starting point for being able to thrive with it, as opposed to shutting it down, as opposed to getting rid of it, as opposed to getting upset when you're anxious, recognizing, okay, this is how it is. I'm a little jazzed up right now. And what am I going to do about that? How am I going to manage this? Without judgment, without fanfare, you know, just, just learning how to move forward. From where you are the word that comes into my head is acceptance yes very much so acceptance is the starting point to being able I, I think i want to add to that you know what you just said the normalization i think for people who, ha who have experienced anxiety um and contrary to my wife i have um i i think you know like you said the first thing is, is okay what's wrong with me um is, is the rest of my life over and the you know it's one thing for someone to say, no, no, you're okay, you're okay. There's a lot of uh, cliche, you know, you know, um, um, back padding and, you know, but but when you could sit with a therapist who says, yeah, I, I've had anxiety. I, I know what that looks like. In other words, they, they can truly empathize, not um, because they um, read it in the DSM, but because they have been there 
that empathy is as healing as anything they're about to say. And another's just the ability to to be with you and know and confirm for you because you're in their office. That means they're more successful than you at something because you're talking to them. You pay to talk to them, or whether that's true or not. But the point is that 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 they've been there and and they're okay, and you're going to be okay. And it's and it's not you're you're okay. You're not crazy. You're not going to go fall apart. That's as healing as any tools that they'll even give. I don't see thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, I don't see my patients as crazy. I see, um, I see sometimes they're extremely distressed. I think some of their choices in certain cases are, I'm going to use the word dysfunctional. And what I mean by that is very literally, it's not serving a positive function in their lives. I don't mean it with judgment. I just mean that it's not a healthy choice. Um, it's not helping them. It's making it worse, more dysfunctional, literally harder for them to function. Um, and in many cases, I do the same. You know, I have plenty of uh, choices that I make and decisions that I make that I'm still learning how to navigate. Um, in the world of anxiety, I, I think I've come a long way and I have a good toolkit. Usually doesn't get the better of me these days. Once in a while when it does, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I will go through the table of contents of my book and figure out what I need to do. I really will do that. I, love that. Um, I, I guess what I want to say, what I'm trying to say is something that's maybe a little harsh and you may not agree with this. And I almost feel like people who don't know anxiety firsthand should not be talking about anxiety. <laughs> um, I, I know that's, that's a harsh thing to say, but that's, you know, I, I know a certain therapist name, the, the name is completely irrelevant. Um, and sweetest, nicest person, very professional. They know all the, all the rules, all the tools. They studied the book back and forth, you know, straight A student. But when you talk to them about anxiety, it's, it's like, the, the, the light in their eye goes out. It's like, it's like, it's like blah, blah, blah. They don't, they don't even, get it. They have That's no clue what you're talking about. It's interesting what you're saying. Um, uh, my mind's going in a number of different directions. One is the anxiety is so ubiquitous. I, I can't imagine there's any therapist who's never experienced that, any aspect of it. Right. So that, that's the first direction my mind is going. So that's kind of helpful. You know, it gives, uh, gives some uh, confidence in whoever you're seeing as a therapist. The other piece though, is that there are certain aspects of psychopathology of, uh, you know, um, a human distress that I have never had experiences of. I don't know what it's like to be psychotic. I don't know what it's like to to be addicted to, to substances. I don't know what it's like to you know to be truly despondently depressed. I've had aspects of sadness. I've had some you know um, certain you know uh, vices I've dealt with. I've had uh, you know perceptual experiences that are beyond reality. Not really. Um, so it's harder. I don't know. I don't know if that makes me a less effective clinician in dealing with those types of cases. So maybe it's unique to anxiety. I don't know. These are interesting questions. Right. Right. I think that that's a really good point because you're never going to find the exact therapist who had the exact experience as that you had. So it's, it, I don't know that, that I can understand that you want them to just get the general idea, but they're never going to have the specific experience that you had. If you could, um, speak a little bit about cannabis induced psychosis. Sure. Uh, cannabis, can, cannabis, firstly, cannabis is not what it was even five or 10 years ago. Um, cannabis today is hypercharged, um, even without being laced. I mean, you know, in certain cases, it actually has uh, certain you know, pathogens which are introduced to it, either intentionally or unintentionally in the manufacturing process. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's hypercharged. It's much more potent. And emergency rooms all over the country are seeing an increase of individuals, usually young individuals, who come in 
Um, often it's edibles because it's hard to know what's in it, how much are you having, um, or it could be other things that they've uh, ingested in some way, smoked or, or vaped or whatever it is, um, who are experiencing acute distress, including perceptual disturbances, uh, immediately in the aftermath of uh, using cannabis. And uh, in many cases, it's not just a one-time thing that can set people off. Um, and uh, they might have to you know, grapple with, um, um, with distress or with going in and out of hospitals with uh, different types of therapy, as well as obviously not using um, for, for a long time. So it's not a joke. It's actually quite a serious public health issue, which unfortunately is getting worse, not better. And we're not regulating. I mean, pot is legal now. Marijuana is legal. Yes. So is, is it not a regulated, is it not able to be regulated at all? Well, to say the part, amount of part of the issue, and this one of my colleagues here at McLean Hospital, Stacey, Dr. Stacy Gruber, who has the MIND lab, the mar or marijuana lab, she um, is studying this and she has made a very strong case in public that our policy has opened up to legalize these substances way ahead of the science. And... Um, that's a problem where we don't know about something and we're essentially deregulating it. Um, there's a risk and this is, this is part of the risk. It's, it's not just that it can create just acute distress, but it literally can trigger off um, you know, extreme psychiatric illnesses that might've been dormant and might've stayed dormant either for many more years or forever, you know, whether it's bipolar or schizophrenia or other things like that. And you know, people need to be aware of that. You're saying that a cannabis induced psychosis can lead to that, is that what you're saying? Do you do you agree with it that? Can definitely be a, it can be it can be a trigger for subsequent psychiatric worsening, and that can take many forms and diagnostic right. terms uh, which are attached to those forms. So okay. uh, yeah, it's a serious pu public health issue, and people should be aware. Yeah, I mean, not that you could stop your teens from doing anything anyway. That ultimately, no, they're going to make their own choices. Correct. Like have an educate, have conversations around it. Let them let they them know about. Aware of it. Yeah. Um, one more question: How can individuals that are um, their loved ones that are suffering, how can they support a loved one who's facing anxiety? Um, what key insights and actions should somebody keep in mind to provide effective assistance and encouragement during their loved one's journey? Sure, I'll give you a couple things off the bat. Number one, do not judge your relative or family friend or um, loved one for having anxiety. You know, uh, not everybody has the blessing of, ex you know, of, of an anxious existence. And if you're one of those people, fantastic. If you're living with somebody who has anxiety, realize that this is an aspect of who they are. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be used in a positive way. And uh, they just need to learn some skills and tools to be able to do so. Um, you could learn some of those skills and tools, and you could potentially try to help them in a non-judgmental, supportive, caring manner. Um, that would be a good starting point. And I bet if you do, you'll probably find some aspect of yourself that's worth working on also. It might not be anxiety, but probably something else. Sure. We all have things that we need to work on within ourselves. Everyone's got something to work on. Absolutely. It may not be anxiety, but it's something else. Oh, yeah. um, let's finish up with our final question. This is something I ask all of my listeners on, I mean, all of my guests on my podcast. What is something that you thought you knew really well, or you were definitely sure about with regard to the topic of managing anxiety or thriving with anxiety, but after years of your experience and working with those who struggle with anxiety that you've changed your opinion on? Sure. Um, I was and still am a diehard uh, cognitive behavior therapist and uh, exposure therapy is going to be my number one option. And it really was in some ways my only option, my only go-to for the first 
probably five, 10 years of my, of my clinical work. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been induced, I've been induced, introduced <laughs> to the work of Dr. Sue Johnson, who is um, a uh, matriarch in some ways of emotionally focused therapy, um, which is uh, based on the science of love and relationships. EFT. EFT. And uh, EFT is a very powerful uh, psychotherapeutic um, uh, approach for couples in distress, also couples who are not in distress in terms of uh, enhancing their bond. It's based on the work of uh, John Bowlby, who was a, a famous British psychologist in the uh, mid-1900s who um, uh, coined his work Attachment Theory. And it is based on human attachment. People need to be attached. They need to be connected. They need to have love. And uh, the more that we have, the more secure our attachments are, the better we are. And I think that interpersonal aspects of um, our lives are were underemphasized in my training. And I've realized over the last several years, the importance, their critical importance in the course of anxiety. And uh, that's something that uh, has uh, a prominent place in, in my book and my thinking and my clinical practice as a result. Uh, I want to just note one thing. I noticed a desk behind you. There's a sign that says high anxiety. Yes. I'm curious. What is that when you pass that? What does that bring up for you? So let me tell you what high anxiety is. This is funny. I was, um, I'm a skier. I'm from Canada originally. And I like to ski, I like to downhill ski. So I was at Breckenridge, Colorado this last season. And I get to the top of one of the chairlifts and there's a run there. It says high anxiety. And I'm like, no way. They actually, you know, they figured it out that anxiety is not <laughs> a bad thing. This is a great ski run. It's gorgeous. You're, you know, it's super steep, a couple moguls on the sides. Um, it's a super fun run. And you might be feeling a little anxious, a little fluttery at the top, but it's there's a line between anxiety and adrenaline and excitement. They're both pumped by adrenaline, I should say. Anxiety on the one hand and excitement on the other are both fueled by adrenaline. And if your adrenaline's really pumping, you might mistake your ex excitement for anxiety. So when I saw that, I said, hey, I, I got to get this for my office. Um, so uh, it, it reminds you of the, the fact that actually anxiety, you can thrive with anxiety. Correct. That's exactly the, the point of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, of when the is your book being released? October 17th. October. We have to wait till October 17th, huh? Okay. But there's a, I noticed that you can pre-order that on Amazon, correct? It can be pre-ordered on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever books are being sold. Um, I also at my website, dhrossmarin.com, hope to have a sample chapter available. I'm working with the publisher on identifying which chapter and how long and all that. Um, but we hope to have that available to people who, uh, can't, who are anxious to get their hands on it. And, uh, <laughs> That's great. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak about it. Yes. Well, we just want to thank you again for your time and for your wisdom and for sharing that with all of us. And um, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.